Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. This week, we're going to be continuing our growth series, where we're picking the minds of practitioners at some of this generation's fastest growing and most successful software companies. Folks that have started growth teams from the ground up, and hopefully along the way, we'll expose frameworks and philosophies that can be applied back to growing your own business. We've already had a chance to talk to some really great guests, including Slack Head of Growth Marketing Rachel Hepworth and former Postmates Head of Growth Siki Chen. But up this week, we've got Brian Rothenberg. Brian's a VP and GM at Eventbrite, where he looks after its self-service product, and he's made his name scaling horizontal marketplaces. Going back a bit, he was a co-founder at Skillslate. That was a local services marketplace, along the lines of Thumbtack, which would go on to be acquired by TaskRabbit. There, he helped 3x core business volume during his tenure as co-head of marketing. He then linked up with Eventbrite in 2013 to co-found its cross-functional growth team. In my chat with Brian, we cover why a company's mission and growth are inexplicably linked. If you don't know why your product or service is growing, you're just one step away from slowing down. Like it will inevitably happen. So I like to view a business as an onion and you're constantly peeling back the layers to more deeply understand it. How he built momentum for Eventbrite's growth team in its earliest days. One tactic that I like is cross-functional learning sessions on what are what have been our experiments show them, get people to vote on what they think the winners were, and then show them the results. And you start to teach. And the ways his growth team actually helped bring bigger customers to Eventbrite. There were small event creators that didn't have any online ticketing at the time, and so that's creating a market. But it's very different when you're trying to capture market from existing players that are higher up in the marketplace. And so that was part of the thesis for why I formed the growth team. How do we go up market? If you like what you hear and want to make sure you don't miss any of our future interviews, either in this growth series or our regular conversations about product management, design, marketing, and more, subscribe to our show. And as of this week, there's a whole new way to do that. Inside Intercom is now available on Spotify. So just open up your app, search for Intercom, and you'll find our show there, along with our audiobooks on product management and customer engagement. All right, now let's hop in the studio, where I'm joined by Eventbrite's Brian Rothenberg. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Brian, welcome to Inside Intercom. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Just to get us started, can you give us a brief rundown of your career to date, where your stops have been, and a feel for what you're doing with your team at Eventbrite? Absolutely. So my career actually started back when I was in college, coincidentally in the event ticketing space. I started my first company uh, when I was a freshman out of my dorm room. It was called eventticketsnow.com. Early 2000s, I was one of the early power sellers on eBay and built a business there, but realized uh, through that experience, I learned a lot, but didn't want to be a ticket scalper my whole life. (laughs) So uh, I went to Yahoo. Again, this was early 2000s when Yahoo was synonymous with the internet. I joined as a junior product manager, focused on their local marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, and just learned a ton about the internet there. Uh, was consumer-facing PM and actually was doing a lot of growth stuff before that was a thing. Before growth was a label. (laughs) Exactly, yeah, before it was growth hacking. Um, But things like SEO, conversion rate optimization, uh, lead gen, things like that. Uh, Basically, I was on a small web property that didn't have a lot of funding, no marketing, and we had to figure out how to grow it. So that was a great experience. Did that for four years. I went back to business school thinking that I wanted to become a venture capitalist. I thought this was this sexy thing and would be a lot of fun. And I did a, a short internship at a VC fund called Canaan Partners. Learned a lot again, but realized I actually have more fun on the operating side and I can come back to VC 
later It'll down the road. Yeah, when I'm old and gray, I can do that. But at that VC fund, I met my co-founder of my next company, which was a company called Skillslate. And that was a local services marketplace focused on uh, helping people hire small businesses rather than local services companies. Uh, very similar to Thumbtack. Actually, we started about the same time. Started that business, raised a $1.5 million round of venture funding from first round capital and others, scaled the team, built the initial product, got somewhat of product market fit, but actually ended up selling uh, kind of early to TaskRabbit. And upon joining with that team, I led online marketing, user acquisition growth there for about a year. Enjoyed my time there, learned a lot more, but was excited for a new opportunity. And when Eventbrite came knocking, it was just too good to turn down. So I had the opportunity to join Eventbrite as their first head of growth, um, helped to build out the first cross-functional growth team that we had, held a number of roles there, ranging from interim CMO to head of growth to GM of our entire self-service business and product. So uh, still doing growth stuff there today and having a lot of fun. Great, great. And what was what was Eventbrite like when you joined back, I think, in late 2012 to now as far as headcount, size, global span? How's it changed? Yeah, it's, it's grown a tremendous amount. So I think there were roughly 150 people when I first joined. We're now pushing towards 900. We've seen a rapid growth in our international expansion. Uh, we have 11 offices across four continents. Much of the team is outside of the United States. That's been a core focus. We have expanded beyond just focus on the event creator side of the marketplace to more of the demand side as well. So how do we drive more ticket buyers and create the virtuous cycle between both sides of the marketplace? And uh, it's been been a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll get into plenty of Eventbrite-related things here in a minute, but I quickly wanted to ask you about Skillslate, which you did mention just a second ago. And you compared it, of course, to Thumbtack, which is still growing today and a name that a lot of our listeners will definitely know. You were acquired by TaskRabbit. I mean, that's a success. But Thumbtack has sort of reached that next level. So I'm curious, looking back on that time, what were the levers that they may have pulled that your team didn't? And what lessons still stick with you from your time there? Yeah. So first of all, I have a lot of admiration for Thumbtack's founders. We've been talking for you know close to 10 years since we started. So I admire the work they've done. I would say a couple of the key differences were um, Skillslate took a local approach focused on New York City only, whereas Thumbtack took a broad national approach in acquiring supply. I think, you know, there are trade-offs between the two, and clearly their method won out. I can't say that that's the root cause. Um, but I will say also they did a good job of building tools for the supply side to engage the supply before they had robust demand. So things like tools to manage their business more effectively, things like an easy-to-use publish my listing to Craigslist functionality that created a lot of utility before they had a ton of people coming to find local services in their market. And I think that was a huge strategic difference in that they were able to engage their supply until they could build the demand, which typically takes a lot longer. And so they created a path that was a runway effective that was much, much longer than ours when we were trying to balance supply and demand all at the same time. That Craigslist example is really interesting because they're, you know, they're meeting the people where they already are, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Plugging into liquid existing networks rather than solely trying to create their own. I think another learning was we almost tried to over-engineer the solution to how we acquired supply. We created this robust web crawler. We used Mechanical Turk by Amazon to extract data from these, these Craigslist-type postings to build our own local services listings and profiles on our site. 
And Thumbtack really took kind of a, a much more simple but still scalable solution. They also crawled the web and used technology, um, but they actually built a 300-person-plus team in the Philippines to help structure a lot of data, invite these service providers to join their network. And while it seems like a much less scalable approach than an automated program, it was effective. They didn't have to invest as much time in the technology, and it was effective in the long run. So I think for many reasons, they were more successful. Those are a couple. Did they reach product market fit faster? Is that ultimately what happened? Yeah, I think they definitely did more so than than Skillslate. And then comparing them to TaskRabbit too, because I had some insight there, I think you know, if you think about Thumbtack, it's effectively Service Magic 2.0. I think Service Magic is now Home Advisor, but right. it's very much like enter the request you need and we'll send that out to a pool of service providers and they'll bid on your job. Like it's the same model. So they effectively just built a better mousetrap in that regard. They've, of course, innovated in many areas since, but um, TaskRabbit was effectively trying to create this peer-to-peer local sharing economy model, which it was just different. It was new and different, and it, it just didn't get to pure product market fit quite as quickly. So shifting over to you when you joined Eventbrite, take me back to those early days. You co-founded the cross-functional growth team, uh, certainly a, a big task. What was it about the company's position at that time that made them say, okay, we've, we've reached product market fit. We're ready to really deliberately grow? Yeah, I think that the founding team stayed small for a number of years. So they didn't raise a lot of capital. It was our three co-founders building the product. And they really worked on building a product that met the market's needs. So again, ensuring they were getting the product market fit. They still kept the team pretty small and and nimble. And fortunately, the product had a lot of built-in levers Mm -hmm. that helped it grow organically, which carried them for a very long time. Virality probably being one of those that was a huge one. Like, so for one, people love the product, so it spread via word of mouth. Uh, another viral component that was built in is that when an event creator comes on the platform, they inherently market their event to attendees, people who attend their events. And so that's classic member to non-member virality. Right. And so it just sort of spread that way, which then fueled another viral loop, which is a number of Eventbrite's event creators that came to the platform, they first learned about it by buying a ticket. And then they had this aha of, oh, I'm organizing events. I can use this simple tool. And so these things were all happening organically, and it was helping the business grow. But at the time that Eventbrite raised that big round of capital, it was really about how do we create the processes, systems, et cetera, to scale, and not only to do so in the U.S., but to scale globally as well. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that aha moment of, I've been buying tickets to this marketplace I can actually organize these events myself. What was your team able to do to help get them to realize that? Or was that happening through the virality itself? So interestingly, it was happening organically. And I was able to actually spot that during my interview process. And there was one other person inside the company already who was digging into this lever. And so we connected and really hit it off. And then when I joined formally, we teamed up and started to form that initial growth team. And, and that was the first area that we focused on. So we, we looked into the data to see, is this happening organically? And the answer was, yes, it is. We had a number of questions around, well, can we actually move that conversion rate of starting out as a ticket buyer, converting into event creator? Can we move it up? And we ran first a number of qualitative studies. So surveys to understand of those that had converted what was the aha moment? So when did they first understand? And then with that information, we started running A-B tests in the product to see, can we actually increase those rates of conversion? And to bring a few examples to life, they were things like on the event listing pages where people would buy tickets, we just started increasing the Eventbrite logo size so that people would see it more and more mm-hmm. and understand, oh, this is Eventbrite. 
We also did things like we added a call to action to find events or create an event. And that really showcased the the two-sided dynamic of the marketplace. And a lot of people started clicking on create an event to find out what that meant. And those are just examples, but there were a number of others. And we shipped those tests and we saw that the numbers were increasing. And so we realized, okay, we're on to something. How did that challenge evolve as you tried to to move up market? Because I think at at a smaller local scale, this is something that's totally new. But as you try to get larger and larger organizers, there are alternatives that you're having to get them to switch from, right? Yeah. So Eventbrite started out really as a, as a new solution for an underserved part of the market. So there were small event creators that didn't have any online ticketing at the time. And so that's creating a market. But it's very different when you're trying to capture market from existing players that are higher up in the marketplace. And so that was part of the, the thesis for why I formed the growth team. How do we go up market? And so I helped to build the first sort of lead gen programs as we were scaling our sales team to help us move up market, all of our marketing automation solutions, really the B2B side of marketing, because the early days of Eventbrite were much more B2C. And so a lot of the classic B2B growth tactics applied for us as well. And and the thing, one of the things that I love about this job is it's a mix of both. It's like right. really core B2C growth tactics and also some of the B2B. That's really, really interesting. So looking more at how you actually composed and built out this team, Often we'll see startups build their growth team through a single function. Maybe it's marketing, maybe it's product. You've cautioned people against this. I've seen in other interviews and talks that you've done. Why is it that a lot of companies are tempted to go this route? What's the pull there and the risk? Yeah, so I I don't think that there's a perfect prescriptive solution. A lot of it depends on the company, their openness to cross-functional teams, and also people who are in seats that have the skill sets that can do the job. But some of the traps that I've seen are when it's run through a single function, functional leaders can sometimes be protective of their domains. Um, So they want to protect their own kingdoms and own their areas rather than form these cross-functional teams where ownership is less clear. It's like, can I get this credit even though there are other people from other functions working on it? And you'd like to think that doesn't happen, but it really does in practice. One of the things that, that I like to say is we should always be asking, uh, instead of what do I own, ask what do I owe to the business? Um, so how can I service the business? Also, inertia is really powerful. It's right. like when it's always the way it's been done, we should keep doing it. But change can be difficult. And tra- it's hard to question the status quo or just what you see other successful companies doing. You figure if it's working for them, it must be right. But you don't see what's happening behind the scenes, right? Totally. And, and people don't fear change. They fear loss and loss of, of that ownership. So it's important to have empathy and talk through it, but also illustrate what's the upside from trying this. I've also seen like, Sometimes companies have tried to create this cross-functional growth team, and for whatever reason, a prior incarnation was not successful, so they're really soured on future attempts. But it's hard to know, was it like not the right time in the product's evolution? Did we not have the right people, the right structure, what it was? And so one thing I advise companies on is like, if you really want to do this right, spend a little bit in advisory shares, bring on an advisor who's done this before to help coach the team give some executive air cover, et cetera, and help to get it off the ground, because I think that really improves chances of success. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but For every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. 
In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So what was the original makeup of the team that you created? Did you have dedicated resources from design products or were they shared? Did you have an analyst right away or did that come later? It was cobbled together, to be honest. Like Kevin Hartz, our CEO at the time, was very bought into the concept. I actually technically reported initially into our head of marketing but I, I made sure through the interview process, I was interviewing with the head of engineering, the head of product, and making sure that they were bought into the concept. As I got in, it turned out one of those people was not quite as bought in, but, but still we persisted, we formed. Yeah, um, how'd, you, how'd you get them past that hurdle? You know, we said, let's set this up as a test, six-month test. And we highlighted this attendee to organizer viral loop that we thought was an opportunity. We highlighted our key hypotheses and how we wanted to prove them out, how we would test it. And we said, give us you know, three engineers, this one product manager, part of her time, myself, and we'll test and we'll prove it out. And so I was pulling a lot of the analytics to start. I was pulling in our marketing analysts to help on it. And we started to show these successive wins and how it was really driving the business. And I think through that, you, you start to form a snowball. And you. one tactic that I like is cross-functional learning sessions on what, are, what have been our experiments, show them, get people to vote on what they think the winners were and then show them the results. And you start to teach. That's really interesting. You start to teach, like people will guess wrong, you know, almost half the time. And so you have to test, you have to experiment. So a lot of it was about ingraining the growth and testing DNA into the company. And again, positioning it as a test, show success. And then if it works out, scale it up. So who would you pull into the room for those types of meetings? Would it be leadership? Would it be people from all disciplines of the company? How would you go about doing that? We did it across... uh, we started product and engineering, uh, folks from marketing, this cross-functional growth team, and then slowly it just got sort of bigger and bigger, and it was an open invitation in an open room. Anyone could join, and uh, you know it was really well-received. So how did your team know where to start? You mentioned the viral loop, so it sounds like you went the activation route. How did you come to that conclusion, or is that just a, something fundamental that you believe that you solve activation first? It's not that I believe you solve activation first. It's more I look for light and heat that's already existing. Like there has to be signal of a strength. Something that's unique to the product or service is typically best. And fortunately, Eventbrite had so many of those levers. One thing I like to say is picking the right company is 80% of the battle. Like not all companies are equal. And some just have inherent advantages. And I'd much rather apply our growth tactics to a company that has these built-in levers than start fresh. But if you are starting fresh and you can't see where this light and heat is, you have to think about where are we in the evolution. Like if you're more early stage, you're probably not going to want to focus on retention. 
assuming you have core product market fit. Right. That's, that's, that has to happen. <laughs> I, that's just table stakes. Like, don't do growth until you have a baseline of retention. If you bring a whole bunch of people to a product that's not ready for it, you're cooked. <laughs> Absolutely. But let's assume we have that product market fit and baseline retention. Then, focusing on retention early, you don't have a huge pool of customers, so it may not be as impactful as if you move up the funnel a little bit more mm-hmm. and focus on top of funnel conversion and activation and onboarding. And typically... I've seen a strong correlation between effective onboarding and retention. So you can sort of get two, two birds with one stone on the activation piece. When you were mentioning how you sort of had to help one person in Eventbrite buy into this concept, I think that's something I've heard previously from folks at other companies I've spoken to, that you got, there is some level of, of buy-in that you need to establish this growth mindset in a company. Is there tension between balancing this idea of having to find quick wins to help get people across the line? versus taking on more strategic long-term plans? It's definitely a balance. Like if you take an all strategic, we have to build the perfect analytics solution and that's going to take two years, you'll never get the program off the ground. But if you're doing sort of a bunch of micro-optimizations, you can run into the problem of, so what? Like, okay, you went from a green to a blue button and got one-tenth of a percent increase in conversion. It literally doesn't matter. And so it's, I don't know, it's a balance and you have to take it step by step. And I I think sort of like get some quick wins, invest in some of the infrastructure, get some more wins, some bigger wins, go back to the infrastructure. So like reinvesting your gains essentially. Effectively, yeah. So getting a little bit less tactical here for a minute, you gave a really great talk recently at Growth Hackers, all about mission-driven growth. And essentially your message was, I'm probably summarizing it too tightly here, but you were basically saying if you don't deeply know why you're growing, you're really closer to not growing. So what does this idea look like in practice? And maybe what happens to a startup that grows for the wrong reasons? Yeah, I think there were two parts in there. Um, one is that the, the talk was about how a company's mission and growth and the strategy involved in both are inextricably mm-hmm. tied. And the example that I provided is like people will do the right what, like they'll build the right things if they understand what are we building towards and how are we uniquely positioned to do it. I'll share an example. Eventbrite was all about open accessibility, reach the masses, power the masses, democratize ticketing. These are terms that our founders would frequently talk about. So people understood this is core to our ethos. Um, Very early on, the product was initially launched to be only for paid events. But some of the early users were actually putting $0 into the price field for tickets. And like some companies would have viewed that as a loophole and closed that loophole and said, we're just going to monetize. And and the founder said, well, no, this is happening. It's organic. It's open. It, it matches our mission. And they let it happen. And so that ended up building one of the biggest growth levers for the company, wow. which is freemium, where, you know, a huge percentage of our tickets, quote, sold are actually free tickets. But that drives trial. And a lot of those initially free event creators convert over to paid and it's a huge lever for us. So that never would have come about if it wasn't tied to the company's mission. Mm -hmm. And that was just an example of how the two are linked. It reminds me of the Simon Sinek idea of start with why, right? That's I literally pulled in uh, the Simon Sinek talk (laughs) into that, into that conversation, but also related to your question around like a company not growing, if it doesn't understand why I've seen it a number of times. I've seen companies, TaskRabbit for one, it was just growing like a weed for a while, but there were some top-line growth things that were masking underlying problems. And so it's led me to believe that if you don't know why your product or service is growing, you're just one step away from slowing down. Like, it will inevitably happen. So 
I like to view a business as an onion and you're constantly peeling back the layers to more deeply understand it. And even if you deeply understand your business, you have to always keep trying. And then if you feel like you have your business down, like you have to be peeling back the layers of your customers' motivations. And they're so tied together. And that was really the core of the talk. So Eventbrite, as we've sort of stated a few times here, is a horizontal platform. Speaking of that specifically, I mean, what unique challenges was your, were your team facing there because of that, that someone that works at a different type of product company might not have to deal with? I, I love horizontal platforms, but they can both be a blessing and a curse. They can be great when you're early to market. So for Eventbrite, it was online ticketing for long tail events. That didn't really exist. For TaskRabbit, it was local peer-to-peer services, and they were a pioneer of the sharing economy. But some of the challenges are customers are often faced with a paradox of choice. Like there are too many options on the platform. So at TaskRabbit, people would come and say things like, great idea. Like, I can't believe I didn't think about this. And then bounce because they, they didn't have like a core burning use case in mind. And the outcome of that was if you look at an old TaskRabbit homepage, it had like grocery delivery and regular deliveries and a bunch of other categories, house cleaning that all these other startups have picked off and literally Mm -hmm. built billion-dollar companies like Instacart for grocery delivery because they had a better vertical solution. This reminds me so much of that Craigslist graphic with all the Airbnb and all the things jumping out of it. That's literally the same thing. That's the same exact thing. And so that's a real challenge, and that happens. And so one way to combat that that I've seen over time is horizontal marketplaces verticalize over time. So if you – sticking with the Thumbtack example – if you go and request a dog walker on Thumbtack, you get a very tailored experience where it's asking you specific questions like how big is your dog? Do they need to be fed? You get the picture, like a visual design that has dogs on it. It makes it feel like a, a unique native experience. Eventbrite also has verticalized over time. So we've taken vertical go-to-market approaches. If you look at any of our recent acquisitions, we've been buying players in the music space. We bought Ticketfly recently, another big music player in Europe, and we continue to build vertical solutions for music, and we'll probably do so for other categories. But you get the point. You, you have this horizontal platform that serves as a great foundation, and you build verticals mm-hmm. on top of it. So another thing that your team has also done is, is localized over time. I think Eventbrite is now in 180 countries and four continents. How have you approached growing these marketplaces abroad? Is there such thing as like localized product market fit, where maybe you have it in one place, but don't in, say, Asia yet or Africa or wherever? Yeah. So for us in our business, gathering in person is really a universal human need. So we view the whole world as our... It's a global job. <laughs> it is. It's totally a global job. And, and just organically, we've, we've grown and sold tickets in 180 countries. We are active in more than 18 markets around the world. We have offices in 11 countries on four continents. But you know the approach that we've taken is that it's first about adapting the product and achieving local product market fit because... You can have great product market fit in the U.S. and really fail miserably if you're lacking, say, a key payments piece in a local market or the localization isn't great. So that's where we start. And that really comes from strong local understanding and in-market customer insights. So teams go on the ground, understand the local customers, and figure out what do we need from the start. We then tend to take a long view, and it's generally about building supply of events in a local market before you layer on the demand side because you really have to have products on the shelf. You can't be sending people the there and then there's one whole event that they could choose from. And if they're not interested in it, they'll never be back. Again. Exactly. Yeah. They bounce and, and they're gone forever and you have brand risk there. So that's really important. And then for us, we found that a mix of central platform wide benefits, like we can run a global AB test in our onboarding flow that benefits all markets. We segment to see how is it performing across markets, but usually more often than not, 
you see a benefit across markets. And that's one aspect, but still, you can't get all the benefit unless you have typically at least a small in-market team for local awareness, positioning of the product, uh, evangelism through events, right? Very yeah. core to us and things like that. So as someone who's worked in the space of horizontal marketplaces for so long now, not that I'm asking you to predict the future or anything, but have we hit a saturation point? We must be close. I mean, is there still room to, to build in this way? I don't think that there's a lot of room for more horizontal marketplaces. You know, we're 20 plus years into the history of the internet. A lot of rocks have been overturned and it doesn't mean that new ones won't start up, but uh, I typically think that the next big marketplaces will start in what looks like a niche and expand out from there. Mm -hmm. So looking at Airbnb as an example, when I first looked at it in 2009, it looked so niche. It was like air mattresses on shared spaces and any, I think a lot of investors probably overlooked it as like, is that really a market? Right. Who's going to want to do that? Is that safe? <laughs> exactly. And, and then, but people adopted it. And so it was sharing of my extra bedroom or my living room. And then they expanded their market to more of the vacation rental by owner type space. And they've expanded beyond that. And now they're going up against hotel chains and experiences and all sorts of things. So again, that started looking like a, a small market and actually has expanded into an incredibly huge market. So just to wrap up here, we've got a few rapid-fire questions for you that we've been asking all of our growth guests that have been coming on the show lately. Short answers, totally fine, but feel free to expand on any that you want. To get started, what would you say is your favorite growth tactic that you think is also underused? I think it's sort of classic marketing, but segmentation, pricing, and product packaging is incredibly powerful, and we've had a lot of success at event right there. One book that's most influenced your thinking and why? Uh, it's a book I'm rereading right now. It's called The Score Takes Care of Itself. It's by Bill Walsh, the great 49ers yeah. head coach who turned one of the most losing teams into a, a dynasty football program. And like, it's really based on my belief that effective growth programs at scale require effective leadership with all the cross-functional coordination and good coaching of a team. And a few of the keys that have really stuck with me from that book are uh, about focusing on process which produces results, not on the actual results themselves. And that failure is key. You have to test and fail in order to find those eventual wins. Another thing that he said that resonates with me is that conventional wisdom leads to conventional results. So you have to try new things. Otherwise, you're just going to get the same thing as everyone else. And then also, in an organization, it's not just important for individuals to know their own role, but they should be aware of, of roles of other people as well and how they're all interconnected. And again, in a very cross-functional area like growth, that's more important than ever. I love that. I've been wanting to, to tie sports and growth together for a while now, so thanks for making that come true. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, one thing I feel like all of us that sort of work in this space can't help but do in our personal lives when we're trying out new products is look at the onboarding experience. Is there anything that you've been through lately that really stood out? Um, unfortunately, I lost my iPhone X this week, so I got a new no. one. And uh, But the upside was it's a delightful experience, unwrapping the whole thing, reactivating it, having all of your data sync from iCloud. It was just a totally easy experience. And I think they've really nailed that whole package unboxing and activation flow. One app or tool that you can't live without these days, other than your iPhone X. Okay. <laughs> Similar Web, I think, is pretty awesome. It's great for understanding competitive dynamics, breaking down competitor analytics, and really sort of reverse engineering some growth tactics that you can try yourself. Speaking of growth tactics, uh, with the emergence of messengers, game-changing new channel for growth, hype, too soon to tell, what do you think? To be honest, I haven't spent a ton of time here, so I can't say definitively, but... It's clearly where people are spending a ton of time 
Uh, there's the social graph involved with that. Um, and so I think there's something there. But the question that I ultimately have is how open will these platforms be and how open will they be at scale? Like we look at Facebook, they had a very open apps network and, and apps e- ecosystem, which Zynga built a whole multi-billion dollar business on. And then Facebook shut them off and Zynga crashed. Right. So like that's the long-term question in my mind. All right, last one for you. What's a common mistake that you've seen growth teams make when it comes to running experiments? What's going wrong? Uh, two things. One I alluded to earlier. So running tests without enough leverage or impact to really matter. So like where a winning test is still a so what result. And then very related is when you find an area that's really high leverage and you're testing repeatedly in that area. But after running a number of experience, you start to see substantially diminishing marginal returns. But teams will sometimes still stay there for too long before jumping to the next thing, mm-hmm. thinking, oh, we're going to eke out another big one. We're going to eke out another big one. And it just kind of doesn't happen. So, so kind of like teams not say, reevaluating their onboarding, for instance. Yeah, I think that's a good example. (laughs) Cool. Well, Brian, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today. Where can our listeners go to get more of your insights or just keep up with what your team's got going on at Eventbrite? Yeah, you can check me out on my blog at brianrothenberg.com or on Twitter at bmrothenberg. Great. Well, we'll catch you next time. Thanks again. Thanks, Adam. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.